Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. You're listening to Give Me the Fear, the Britflix podcast, Fright Fest 2023 preview series. My name is Stuart Wright. And usually, I host this show. But for this genre talent-filled build-up to the Woodstock of Gore, I'm keeping stumped. When this intro is done, this is the last you're going to hear from me until I ask you to tell your friends all about it. The spoiler-free interviews are brief, and across the entire series, you will discover the kind of knowledge and experience about how to make horror films that they just don't teach you at film school. Are you ready for that? After looking back at the blood, sweat and tears that went into their creative successes, I asked them one last question. If you could handpick one person to be in the audience, alive or dead, famous or personal to you, for your Fright Fest screening, who would it be and why? I think you're going to love the answers this question elicits. I certainly do. That's my introduction over with. Let's hear from the talent. I'm Mitch Jenkins, and I'm the director of A Million Days. A Million Days is all about one night, uh, one very eventful night, and uh, our protagonist, he's sitting at home having dinner with his wife. He's an astronaut. She's a major scientist, and their evening is interrupted. Uh, Her assistant has turned up. Um, She's got news. The artificial intelligence they're using to uh, prepare for the launch the following day to set up a colony on the moon because the earth is in eco meltdown um something's gone wrong so over the course of the evening uh, charlie our uh, assistant and sam the scientist and anderson the astronaut are trying to figure out what's going on and then they have another unexpected visitor that evening who throws another spanner in the works and over the course of the evening Anderson has to decide whether he is going to sabotage the whole of his life's work and the colony colonization of uh, the moon, or to listen to the AIJ and be prepared to make some radical sacrifices and changes. Um, and it's over the course of that evening that he has to actually come to a decision. Um, and that's what it's about. It's basically a three-hander and um, with this one unexpected visitor and a lot of major decisions have to be made. So when we were making 
a million days, we were um, isolated in base studios in uh, in Wales. And it was in February. I'd only had three months prep on the whole film. Um, and we're in this old uh, car factory, which is leaking, and there's seagulls on the roof, and it's freezing, freezing cold. Um, and we didn't have a great deal of time to develop the script, as I would have liked to have done, having worked with Alan Moore. You know, everything is tuned and finely tuned. Um, but on this occasion, we were doing quite a lot of um, script development meetings in the pub um, after each day, um, just making sure we had no holes that needed to be sort of like worked upon. But the funniest thing in the whole of the film was, so it was just freezing all of the time. And now poor actors, we had um, portable heaters that would be put in front of them. So when they were talking, the condensation of the steam from their breath, because um, it was so noticeable. Um, so we had these, these heaters below them that was getting rid of this. And after a while, we just realised it wasn't working. So we went to the pub that evening and we had an executive decision. Well, I made an executive decision with Stuart Howe, my DOP, and Darnie von Rensburg, my first AD. We just said, we're chasing our tails on this bloody condensation thing. It's supposed to be 2041. The earth is dying. What the heck? Let's embrace the condensation of the steam from every breath. So from, from the next day, we took away the heaters. And um, when you're watching the movie, you see these surreal moments where it's just seeing people's breath. Um, but we embraced it, and, uh, and that's the joy of independent filmmaking. So I was brought onto the film uh, three months before shooting, um, and I immediately jumped in the car once I'd got the gig and everything was signed. And I drove to Wales to meet the production um, designer. Um, and I was looking at the set that had been built or was going to be built. And I realized that, you know, the tail was wagging the dog on this insofar as it was being built as a replica of the location house that we'd be using for the exteriors. And they were spending all of this time and money trying to build a kitchen and do various other things. And it's like, what the hell are you doing, guys? You know, it's supposed to be a space age. So I wanted to embrace. 2021, which you know, isn't that far away, but I, I wanted something to be a bit more sci-fi than worrying about the um, marble um, countertops. So at that point, I am um, through a spanner in the works for the dear old production designer and decided I wanted like this corridor that, that would become this umbilical cord that would take us throughout the set. Because if you're doing a three-hander and you know, you've got an hour and a half of dialogue, you know, the audience has to feel that there's some kind of way that you can move around rather than just doing talking heads. So so that was one way that I could find to actually turn it from a stage play, which, which in some ways it read on the page initially, to a film to bring a cinematic vibe to it. So the poor production designer, Stephen, um, he'd been given X amount of money for his budget. And I literally turn up and it was like, Sorry, mate, you've now got to build a new corridor. We need an office for Sam because at the moment she's this world-class scientist and she doesn't have an office. How come only the astronauts got an office? Surely she would have an office. And also she's got a lot of dialogue to give. And Kemi Bo Jacobs, who plays Sam, is just an incredible actress. Um, and I felt that we needed to um, we needed to give her her own space. 
And equally with the screenplay, when I first read it, it was White Male 30. That was the name of the, uh, it was um, Charlie is the male assistant. It's like, why do we need a male assistant? You know, we've already got an athletic 50-year-old astronaut. I mean, let's get rid of the men and sort of like populate it with women. I mean, if, if I'd had my way, I'd probably have a female astronaut as well. But as it was, you know, I was changing the screenplay to sort of like make it feel a bit less like um, a standardised play and try and stop, stop playing to stereotypes. So you know, going back to Stephen, our production designer, bless his cotton socks, he then had to go out, redesign everything, create more rooms, and um, and do it with absolutely no money. But there we are. It's a joy of being a production designer. So yeah, having a three-hander, um, by the time we got to the edit, it became apparent that we needed to enable the film to breathe and the performances to breathe. So we to get outside of the house. Um, and that was becoming more and more apparent when we were filming. And yeah, we had a little bit scheduled for here and there. We only had one day to do exteriors, but it, it, it really felt to me that we needed to take a breath. And that's something we ended up doing when we were in the edit, was to actually extend the exterior scenes where possible, just to step back, because it's very intense when you've got a, a three-hand, when you've got all these people just talking. Um, so that became apparent in the edit. Um, also, when you were doing an edit, as you know, you, as directors, you tend to, you know, have notes from producers. Um, and sometimes producers' notes, I sometimes find, can be a little bit too, um, they like to signpost everything because they sometimes feel that the audience isn't necessarily, you know, sophisticated enough. And they want to make it a much more, um, an easier viewing, shall we say. Um, so <clears throat> I was trying to point out to the producers and anyone else who listened to me that sci-fi audiences are probably the most sophisticated audiences in the world because they can literally suspend their disbelief and can engage, and they're a very sophisticated audience. So it was trying to find a way through where, you know, I was working with the, produ with the producers, um, and the execs just to ensure that, you know, their notes are, you know, lived with and understood and respected, but equally try not to dumb down the film too much. Um, but the one thing that really came out of the edit was that we needed to get out of the house. Um, we had to get out. So that was something that B, our editor, um, she was like a big help for that. And she just kept saying, look, we've got to get out. Let's just cut and move on, uh, which is what we did. And so, and with the, um, VFX, I was trying to explain to everyone, you know, less is more. And thankfully, they listened on that because, you know, unless you have the budget, because people's sophistication, they expect everything to look like Star Wars. And in reality, that budget isn't there for anyone outside of the Marvel Studios, per se, um, or Lucas. So it was trying to reduce the amount of VFX in the film. I was always wanting to put less in. Um, I was challenged by producers to put more. So it was trying to find a way where we could um, accommodate what worked best for the film. And, and I like to think we found a really good midway through. Um, yeah, I, I like the film. I enjoy watching it. I'm, I'm thoroughly delighted that, you know, with a very small crew, and we shot it in 14 and a half days, um, you know, it's what you can achieve when you've got, you know, a motivated group of creatives. 
If I could choose someone to be there at Frankfest for the premiere of A Million Days, it would actually be Alan Moore, um, who is just one of the sweetest, most wonderful human beings on the planet and a very dear friend. And due to bloody COVID, you know, he doesn't really get out that much because, you know, he's a very sensibly-minded man, doesn't want to actually expose himself to COVID. So I would love Alan to be there, but I know it's never going to happen. It was just that, um, you know, it was because of our relationship. Um, we started this journey together, this filmmaking journey together, um, with our first short act of faith, and then that went on to become showpieces, which were screened at Fright Fest. And then we had the show, which was screened at Fright Fest, and uh, he was never there for that one, which was a shame. Um, and now I've got another one at Fright Fest, my third film. Um, so, yeah, I'd like Alan to be there because, you know, he, you know, he started me on this journey and um, bastard, you know, because it's such a, it's such a huge job being a filmmaker, an independent filmmaker, and you have to give everything to it. So uh, I'd have liked him to have been there to actually sit down and uh, I'd have bought him some popcorn and he could have sat and hopefully enjoyed the film. No doubt he would have critiqued it throughout the whole way through, but other than that, Alan Moore was the man I would be there. Uh, my name is Zach Pastro and I am the uh, writer director and sole animator of uh, The Weird Kids. The Weird Kids is a hand-drawn uh, coming-of-age horror film uh, that follows three preteens, uh, Doug, Mel, and Fat. And uh, Doug's older brother, Wyatt, and his girlfriend take the kids on a weekend camping excursion um, out into the desert. And along the way, they kind of catch wind of this local legend that there may be a creature roaming the park at night called the night child that is, you know, hunting and, and uh, attacking the, the campgoers. And so they kind of take it as a campfire tale. But uh, as kind of the movie progresses, they start to learn how real it is or isn't and kind of what's involved in all that. When it comes to the pre-production of the film, uh, being that it was an animated film and, and it, it's an independent film, uh, there were some really interesting pre-production things that happened that were fun and inspiring and kept me moving. And one was when I finished the first finished the script, uh, producer Lucky McKee moved into my hometown where I live. And uh, we he read the script and loved it and was like, you know, why don't we workshop this? And so we uh, would sit in his living room uh, every day of the week and read 10 pages out loud, going back and forth. And hearing the the film in that way, it was like, okay, I see where, where we need to rewrite and do different things. And so once that process was done, it was such a fun process that it's like a creative um, jolt of energy. And once that was done, uh, Lucky was like, all right, man, let's keep going. Like the, the script's in good, good shape. Like who, who do you want to be in it? And so uh, we set up this, our, our uh, sound designer friend, uh, Andrew Smedic came into town and set up a tent in Lucky's guest room. And one by one, we had voice actors come in and record. So 
that was just, and, and it was just so fun. Like there was just so much good energy and, and it just made me, once all the voices were recorded with Lucky's, um, you know, his support of the script and his excitement, like it made me want to keep just getting to animating basically. When it came to the production and getting into animating on the film, it, you know, this was a little different than other animated films because it's a smaller film. I was the sole animator. My wife, Hannah, was my collaborator and painted the backgrounds and we did, that was it. Like the, the full production team and post team, you can count on less than two, you know, less than two hands. And so, um, you know, production, it, it happens in any animation of any scale where there's this, you know, you work for a long time on a shot or a scene. And then there's these magic moments when you see them all come together and they work. And then it makes you want to keep going. So, you know, the process with the weird kids, I learned early on that if I storyboarded out everything like a traditional feature animated film would do, I was going to lose years storyboarding and being a perfectionist about storyboards. So I started doing these rough thumbnails and I'd go one scene at a time. Um, I would do these tiny bit crude thumbnails and then I would edit together the, uh, the, the cast's recordings as needed for the scene. And then just start animating shot by shot. And I'd be animating the characters individually and, and their interactions with one another. And then my wife would be painting the backgrounds. And, and you know, we'd go through the whole scene. And it, you know, might take weeks. It might take a month or two. And there'd be this magic moment where we would marry the, the backgrounds and the character animation and then edit the shots together. And it's like, hey, that scene works. And the voices are awesome. And, like, there'd be this infusion of energy. And it's like, all right. Let's go to the next one. <laughs> and we'd start the whole process over again. Because I work as an editor, um, you know, it's kind of my trade in, in filmmaking. And I've been really fortunate to get to edit the films that I've gotten to edit, work with filmmakers that I have. Um, I, you know, one thing that I've learned in editing is there are these tricks where you can kind of, um, you know, you trick people's perception. And you know, one shot to the next. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. You can almost imply motion that doesn't happen or moments that don't happen. And I started to realize, you know, this, the economy of animation for the weird kids became important because it was just being animated by me and my wife doing the backgrounds. And 
so what I learned was those editing tricks kind of came into play when I started planning out shots. It was like, oh, wait a minute. Like we can go from this shot to this shot and people's brains will fill in the blanks. And like, maybe we don't have to animate this full motion here, but we can continue part of the motion over here. And so I started to pre-edit the film every in sequence, shot by shot, scene by scene. I started to pre-edit it in my mind, how they would play together. And, you know, it allowed me to also, there were times that there, I would get into the weeds on like editing the audio on a scene and getting ready to storyboard it or, you know, thumbnail it out. And I'd be like, something doesn't feel right here. Like, it'd be like a gut, a gut feeling you would have editing a film down the line. You have all your footage together, but it'd be coming sooner. And I'd be like, you know what? I don't need this shot or this actually, they don't need to say this here. Like, this is redundant. And it's like, why spend a week or two <laughs> animating these things? Let this go and let's move forward. And and it was just a lot of fun to kind of play the puzzle that way. There was just like, my editing background paid off in a way that I think uh, optimized my time animating. Well, it was nice is I got to be ruthless myself. So I, <laughs> you know, normally I've, you know, you got to be careful and kind of when you're talking with other people and collaborating with other people, but I got to be very ruthless with myself, which was offered some freedom to just like, get into the weeds by myself and not affect anybody else and then come out on the other side. So when you're editing a, a traditional film, like there's always a moment where, you know, you as an editor, you're kind of the fresh pair of eyes for the filmmaking team. When you sit down, you don't know the background of what happened on set each day, whether they made their day, whether an actor or someone was being difficult. And so you can come out with a fresh set of eyes and edit the, the story together. Um, and because I was editing my own film, I didn't always have a fresh set of eyes, but I think the amount of time that animation takes offered this fresh set of eyes. And that once, by the time I had, you know, my but Hannah had painted all the backgrounds, I had finished all the character animation for each shot, and then we com composited them and then edited the shots together by scene. By the time we got to that, there'd been such a space of time that seeing it come together, um, it's almost like a fresh pair of eyes immediately because you're seeing, you've seen all these little pieces, but now you're seeing them all together and it looks different than you conceptualized. And then it, you're also still, because animation is such a frame by frame thing, there's a weird meticulousness where, you know, you do over scrutinize. And, and so you kind of, you know, you start making little revisions in the edit and in the animation, but you know, to get a perspective, though, uh, from time to time, you know, if I'd finish a stretch, I would bring in um, like Lucky and show Lucky a, a scene. And he would, you know, and if he was laughing or having fun and, you know, he would, or he would offer suggestions or um, producer Charles Horak, like I would kind of, you know, I would defer to the team around me, the sound designer, Andrew Fred, the Smedic would come in and, and watch things and give me input too. And it was, it was a nice way of working. It was, it was such a long process. I mean, over the course of almost seven years, eight years um, of animating, uh, because I was doing my day job editing feature films um, during the, and then animating at night my own film. But um, it was nice to have these collaborators that I trust that could come in and, and help me have that, that, that perspective and that, that space. And including my, and my wife, Hannah, um, you know, she would watch things and scrutinize and so i had but every beat of the way there was this like little checks and and balances which was really nice wow as far as an audience member alive or dead 
from this universe that I would like to be in the audience of Fright Fest. I actually have two, and I know it's kind of cheating. The first person that I would love to be in the audience of Fright Fest would be uh, my grandmother. Her given name is Josephine, but as she grew up, she was given the name Mutt by her brothers. And she grew up, and and as you know, as I knew her as my grandmother, she had fourteen dogs, so it kind of was this weird uh, name that she grew into. But um, sh- she was, you know, Mutt was a Kiwi, and I feel like a lot of my time with her shaped my sense of humor and my sense of storytelling and my love of movies. I watched a lot of movies with her as a kid growing up. And then um, the other person that I would like, the other person that I'd love to be in the audience of Pride Fest or to see the film at some time would be be Alex Winter, actually. The actor and filmmaker, Alex Winter. His film Freaked and then the Bill and Ted series, you know, as much as The Weird Kids is influenced by, you know, the coming of age cinema of the 80s and like those gateway horror movies, it's really also influenced by kind of the spirit that is captured in like Freaked and in Bill and Ted's films. Like there's a, there's a sincerity and a heart in them that just makes them soar, no matter how crazy or absurd they get. Like it's, there's something in the heart of them that, uh, that really shines through. And it was something that was important to me about making the weird kids, um, a feeling that I wanted to try to inject in, into it. So the movie uh, is called Punch. And my name is Andy Edwards, and I am the writer-director. Um, I also am the co-producer and the editor. Um, but I would like to point out that this isn't some egomaniac control freak um, thing. This is the necessities of low-budget independent punk rock filmmaking. Sometimes it's just easier to do everything yourself. And, well, cheaper to do everything yourself rather than easier. It's the opposite of easy, but the film is a very simple film i think um it concerns a young woman called frankie uh who is in back in her hometown on a break from university uh where she's been looking after her mother who isn't well uh this is her last night in the town before she goes back to university uh, and she's celebrating um with a few friends but uh, also out in the town that night is the local bogeyman, and he's called Mr. Punch. Uh, so it's set over the course of one night. Frankie and her friends have to survive uh, a masked slasher killer, Mr. Punch. Oh, and the town is a, it's a seaside town, hence it's Mr. Punch. It's a seaside town in winter. I um, mean, the location kind of came hand in hand with that birth, the idea, really. Um, I had two um, ideas in mind. One was to create a very UK slasher, but I couldn't think who it would be. I, you know, I came up with all some kind of terrible ideas <laughs> who would be a British slasher. Um, and then I also wanted to film something in a seaside town in winter that had been kind of on my sort of back of my mind for a long time because I love the sort of melancholy vibe you get from them. Um, and then as soon as I kind of put the two together, went slasher in a seaside town in winter. Oh, there we go. I know the vibe. And who's the killer? Well, it's Mr. Punch from Punch and Judy. And it all, there it was. There's the movie. My favourite bit of pre-production was the location scouting. Because uh, I went to a few seaside towns 
Um, so that meant fish and chips, ice creams, you know, all in the name of research. Um, and I went uh, and I picked uh, Hastings in the end um, because I went with Morel Anthony Hales, producer of Werewolf Santa, which is at Pride Fest. Um, but he's from Hastings and he shot a number of movies in Hastings. So he took me on a tour, basically, of his, his hometown. Um, so we checked out, you know, I had a tick list of locations I wanted to find. We obviously checked out the local pubs, the local fish and chips. Um, and one fact that he, he might have told you on his Werewolf Santa um, interview, um, Arel is one of 11 brothers and sisters, and most of them all still live in the town. And he hadn't told them any of them he was back. And was like, I'm going to keep it a secret and not tell anyone because they'll, they'll just want to speak to me and stuff when we're busy. And pretty much everywhere we went, we bumped into one of his many siblings. And so, yeah, the, a lot of them helped out in the film. Um, one of his brothers worked on the pier, so he got us access to the pier. One of his brothers is a drone pilot, so he shot the drone footage in the film. And one of his sisters works in a cafe and she uh, provides some catering. And one of his other brothers is an extra. So family, a family affair. That was a, so that was the best bit of pre-production. Shooting the movie, um, it was most yeah, most of it was in Hastings. Um, very quick shoot. We were in a different location each day. Um, you know, a great location. Uh, but you know, one day we were in a chip shop, one day we were on the pier, one day we were on the beach. Um, I think the best day for me, and I think for all the crew, um, there's a house party scene in the film. Um, and we were, you know, in a strange town that apart from Arel's brothers and sisters, we didn't know anyone. We were shooting late into night. This scene was taking place at three in the morning, you know, shooting at three in the morning. So we didn't have any extras. Um, well, we had a couple. Uh, so we just created our own house party. We put some tunes on. Everyone in the crew had a beer. Uh, and we just filmed that. Uh, so most of the party extras in the scene are crew. Uh, the DJ is our uh, focus puller, um, things like that. So, and I think that kind of really buoyed the mood of the crew as well, because, you know, we were shooting nights, you know, on the beach and it snowed one night on a beach. It was pretty grim. So to have a night shoot, but indoors, we could all, you know, listen to music, drink beer. Um, it kind of really increase the mood of the crew, I think. And uh, that was that was the best best time for me. Well, post-production took a little bit longer on this film than I wanted to. I kind of wanted to um, get this get this done in time for Fright Fest last year. Um, but we were, I wanted um, a certain number of little effect shots or stunt shots that we didn't have time to do on location or um, they weren't safe to do because there's an underwater scene, brief underwater scene. And we looked into doing it on location, you know, underneath a pier in Hastings at night. And it was, yeah, the cost and the health and safety, it just wasn't worth it. So um, these shots were shot um, in a water tank in Croydon, um, which I didn't know there was one, but yeah, there's an underwater filming tank in Croydon, and I've never shot underwater stuff before, uh, and that was that was really fun and good 
good to do to actually take our time and do it safely uh, and make it look really good. Uh, so that was um, probably the best bit of the sort of post process is kind of put it, piecing together these little bits that you know, we'd, we'd wanted to do on production but couldn't. It was a case of uh, filling in the holes, really. I edited the movie as we'd shot it in Hastings with, you know, did put up an assembly edit together, you know, within a few weeks and then could see the gaps basically that we needed to fill in. So there we did two days pickup in uh, Clacton-on-Sea. Um, mainly to get extra pier shots uh, because we shot on Hastings Pier, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but Hastings Pier had recently burnt down and been rebuilt. Uh, so it's a brand new, lovely pier, but there's nothing on it. Um, so we were shooting on this pier and it just kind of looks like a blank expanse of nothingness. There's, there's, there's nothing to tell you it's a pier. There's no rides, there's no fairground, there's nothing on there. Um, so then, yeah, you kind of look back in the edit and you're like, it's just, it's just, our characters are just in a blank void here at night. So uh, so we reshot some of that on Clacton because they've got a, you know, a proper pier with rides in it. And then, yeah, the same with the underwater stuff. It was, yeah, you know, I left a 10 second gap in the edit and shot it six months later. Hopefully it will all be seamless. The jump from Hastings to Clacton to a water tank in uh, Croydon. Um, hopefully, you know, with six months apart. So hopefully it will it will uh, all feel seamless, but obviously, but it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, on set, you know, we were kind of trying to get people into, into the vibe of the movie and we had a lot of day players who'd come in for just one day. And you kind of got to get have a shorthand for, you know, what is this film? What are we aiming for? And my shorthand was we are making Ken Loach's Halloween. It's got a very American slasher structure. It's, you know, it's Halloween. It's teenagers on a night out set over the course of one night. And there's a guy in a mask who's chasing them. It's very American style slasher structure. But I wanted it shot and acted in a British kitchen sink drama kind of way. So it's not classy American teens, it's kind of, you know, average British working class people dealing with this, this threat. Um, so yeah, so Ken Loach is Halloween. So initially I was like, well, obviously we'll get, get John Carpenter in. Um, he can, he can, you know, he was obviously the inspiration. Um, but he's also famously very grumpy. And I think that he might just sit there and hate the movie. Uh, so I thought maybe Ken Loach um, and he'd see he could see obviously the influence of hopefully of you know kind of showing British working class people on screen, um, but then in a, with a in a genre world. So yeah, Ken and maybe maybe John Carpenter sat next to him. We'll see. How they might get on. If you enjoyed this podcast please share it with at least one friend. Put a link out on social media, rate and review it for your preferred podcast platform. Put an ad in Lou, Novel the Town Crier, Whisper in the Ear of the Town Gossip. You get the picture. It all helps bring new people into the Britflix podcast fold.
Thank you. Mealtime inspiration. It's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for one twenty nine each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.